Well, welcome to week four of our series that we've entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? We're really glad that you're here. If you're new with us, this is week four, and I'd encourage you, maybe go back and listen or watch the previous messages, because this is sort of one big, long message that's divided into four parts, and this is sort of the the culmination of those other three parts. Um, At the end of our service today, I just want to remind you, we are going to be celebrating baptisms, and so um, if you're on the list, wonderful. We're excited to celebrate with you. If you're not on the list, and you're a follower of Jesus, or you become a follower of Jesus before the end of the morning, um, we would love the chance to celebrate baptisms with you, and um, so we'd love to meet with you uh, as we lead up to that. So keep that on your mind and on your heart as we jump in today. I grew up in Southern California, and so like Colorado, most of the days were covered in awesome sunshine. It, the, the sun works a little bit better there, at least in the wintertime, and so um, it's warmer. But <clears throat> except for one house, my street was a bright street. Uh, the house was owned by a man named Mr. Marshall. I'm not sure what his first name was, but he was sort of the Clint Eastwood get off my lawn guy of our neighborhood. He, his house had um, overgrown junipers that covered the walkway. His grass was unkept. He was the house at Halloween that we never went to and that always had its lights off. He might as well have had a sign out front of his house that said, keep out, keep out. It was really clear that He didn't want anybody coming near his house. If a ball went over the fence into his yard, it was one that we were not going to get back. Anybody have a Mr. Marshall in their neighborhood? A get off my lawn kind of guy? If you didn't, you might be your neighborhood's Mr. Marshall. Um, (laughs) I've met with a lot of people. And I think a lot of people have this view of God, like God's a little bit like Mr. Marshall. Keep out. Keep keep them at an an arm's length distance. You've got to to meet certain standards. You've got to do certain things. You've got to be somebody unique in order to have God say, well, you're welcome here. I think a lot of people, even people that have sat in church for a really, really long time, believe that God has this perpetual keep out sign in front of his house. Which makes it interesting and a little bit of a struggle when we read a passage in scripture like Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, what? Welcome. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another. It literally means in the Greek, take someone to yourself. Make space for them. And it starts to break down this view of God that God has this perpetual keep out sign in front of his proverbial house, doesn't it? Welcome each other like God has welcomed you. I think it actually begs us to ask the question, well, how has God welcomed us? We've been talking about this throughout the series that we are called to be hospitable people, People that make space in our hearts and in our homes for others. People who are people of welcome and love of the stranger, not of rejection and keeping our arms length distance from them. We talked about how that's really difficult. It's not easy, especially if we're doing it right, that sometimes there's grumbling that comes along with offering hospitality, which is why the scriptures say offer hospitality without grumbling. As long as there's been hospitality, there's been grumbling about offering it. 
And we talked last week about how the, the table, the normal, ordinary table that you eat meals around is maybe the greatest evangelistic invention ever created. That meals have this power about them. Welcome each other as God has welcomed you. So how does God welcome us? If you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. And if you don't have your Bible, I'd encourage you to uh, pull it up on your phone or maybe look on with the person next to you. Not all of the verses are going to be on the screen for us today. And I want to answer that question, how does God welcome us by telling you a story? Actually, I want to tell you two stories. And in order to tell you both of those stories, you need a backstory. The backstory is that Jesus' relative, John, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, didn't quite keep his opinions to himself. And so when Herod, the king of the Jews, took his brother's wife to be his own wife, he had some words for Herod. And he told him, Herod, I don't think what you're doing is right. And because of that, he found himself in jail. And Herod's wife, Herodias, was a little bit offended by John's accusation about their relationship being inappropriate. And so John is sitting in a jail cell waiting for his time before the king, and that's where we pick up the story. Mark chapter 6, if you're following along, we're starting in verse 21. It says this, finally the opportune time came, and we'll find out what that opportune time is for in just a moment. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee and when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. So, just, just a quick time out. This is his um, now stepdaughter, but also his niece, who comes in and dances for him and pleases him. This guy has some issues, yeah? Like, we don't want to go to PG-13 rated R version, although we could because of what's going on in this text. It's inappropriate and disgusting, to say the least. We're tracking? Okay, we're tracking. So, she pleased him. And this goes on like this. And the king said to the girl, ask anything you want, and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom, which he could not give. Only Rome could grant that. So a lot of people who write about this passage of scripture say, Man, Herod must have been drinking a little bit too much. And certainly at Herod's lavish parties, there was a lot of drinking that went on. A lot of things that we would say would be inappropriate. And he makes a promise that he just simply can't keep. A lot of people think she knows that he can't keep that promise. And so she doesn't ask for half of his kingdom. Listen to what she asks for. She went out, verse 24, and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. That was one of those uh-oh moments. He'd said this in front of all of his friends. He said this in front of important people. Now his question is, am I going to deliver on this promise that I've made? But because of his oath and his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her. Peer pressure. 
So immediately he sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, brought, him back, brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. I mean, this is an awkward dinner party. Not, not every day that something like this happens. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took the body and laid it in a tomb. Now, um, a few questions, because the Bible is maybe more brilliant than we could give it credit for. Who's the host of this party? Herod. Where's the party? It doesn't tell us, but most people presume it's in one of Herod's many palaces. Herod was the great because of all the things that he built. It's in his palace. Who are the guests? We have three guests named. We have nobles in the land. We have military officials. And we have prominent men from all around Galilee. This was a party that was by invite only. And you had to be the upper echelon, the elite, in order to be invited. What happens at Herod's party? Well, there's entertainment. There's, enter- there's dirty dancing, if you want to call it that. There's food, there's drinking, there's partying. It was a symposium like Herod was sort of famous for throwing. And what's the result of Herod's party? Death. Someone finds their head on a platter because Herod throws a party. So the question becomes, as we continue in the text, what in the world is Jesus going to do? in response to his relative being murdered by the king of the Jews, Herod. I mean, he's got a few options that we'll talk about in a moment, but in an honor-shame culture, Jesus has to do something to defend the honor of his relative. What's he going to do? And that's what this sort of um, undertow leads us to in verse 30. If you're following along, let's keep going. And the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported all that they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going, they didn't even have a chance to eat. He said, come away, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place to get some rest. So, so many people are coming and going. Why are they coming and going? Well, John's head's on a platter. Jesus is his powerful relative. What's Jesus going to do? How's he going to respond? What is his tactic going to be for confronting this evil Herod? Will he incite a rebellion? Will he go into hiding? Will he ask for a private meeting with Herod to talk about why he did that? Is he going to do Messiah-y things and overthrow Rome? Is he going to quit and go home? What's he going to do? Verse 32 so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. You get the picture, they're on a boat going across the lake. People are running along the side of the lake in order to meet them when they get to shore. Jesus has just heard that his relative John has been killed. All he wants to do is get a moment to catch his breath and he sees the people running along the shore to meet him. I mean, if I were Jesus, I would have had my keep out sign up. Who's with me? I just need a moment. I just need to catch my breath. 
come on, you guys. I've done all these things for you. Can you just give me a second? And when Jesus landed, a large crowd, saw, he saw a large crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. That is a very reasonable request by the disciples. We've got no food. Send them away. Put up the keep out sign, Jesus. If there ever was a time for it, it's now. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding country and villages to buy themselves something to eat. Verse 37, but Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we going to spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. And they find out, found out and they said, five and two fish. And Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. The good shepherd makes his people lie down in green pastures. Taking the five loaves and two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. He gave to them them to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of the men who ate was 5,000. We don't know how many people ate. We know that 5,000 men ate and were satisfied. Okay, look up at me for a moment. Make no mistake about it. It is not incidental nor accidental that Herod's banquet and Jesus' banquet are right up next to each other. Mark is making a point. He's waving a flag. He's sounding an alarm. He does not want us to miss it. The host of Herod's banquet, King Herod. The host of the kingdom's banquet, the kingdom feast, Jesus. Herod's takes place in a palace. Jesus' banquet takes place in the wilderness. Herod's banquet, you have important dignitaries invited, military officials, prominent people. Jesus' banquet, who's invited? Whoever wants to come. Whoever wants to come. The empire's banquet, Herod's entertained. He receives the kingdom's feast. Jesus, it says, teaches. He gives. At Herod's banquet, Herod commits a murder. A head gets put in a guillotine. At Jesus' banquet at the kingdom feast, Jesus extends compassion. Groups of people are told to recline in green pastures. At Herod's banquet, people lose their life. At Jesus' banquet... People are satisfied. Mark wants to answer for us the question, how does God welcome us? When he's tired, when he's in pain, 
when he's at the end of his rope, does he then, then does he put out the keep out sign? And Mark says, no way. Even when he's burnt out, even when he's frustrated, even when he's disappointed, Jesus says to you and I, you are welcomed here. You're welcomed here. We have the battle of the kingdoms going on, not just the battle of the kitchens going on. This isn't just a battle of who has the best food. This is a battle of who has the best feast, who's throwing the better party. Herod, the empires of the earth, or Jesus? And Jesus' banquet in Mark chapter 6 is a signpost that's pointing to the coming kingdom that's present right now, not fully, but here, and will be here fully someday. Somebody say amen. And I think what this passage wants us to say is we have these two banquets. We have these two feasts going on in front of us every moment of every day. You do know that Herod still throws his feast in the midst of the world's empires and that the kingdom of Jesus gathers inside of it to say there's a better party being thrown. There's a better party being thrown. It's really interesting. Where does a homeless, itinerant Jewish rabbi host a party? He's got no home to open up. And he says, man, all all I really need is a field. I'll take it from there. I'll take it from there. It's a signpost of the coming kingdom. And if if you're sort of a Bible scholar, think of all the different ways that what Jesus does points to Psalm 23. The Lord is my whom? Shepherd. It says, he looked on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I shall not want. They walk away satisfied. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Literally in the Greek, it says that he forces them to recline in the green grass. He restores my soul. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Herod's banquet's going on. Jesus' party is happening. He anoints my head with oil, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, because Jesus is the gracious host, and friends, we are his invited guests from beginning to end. Your Bible is about a story of God making space for you. It begins in a garden where God lays it out and says, it's good, it's beautiful, it's exactly what I want so that human beings can flourish. And we do a little bit of messing it up, right? That's what the middle of the Bible is about. And at the very end, what we see is that God, once again, it's not a garden anymore, it's a city, but he's once again the gracious host who welcomes humanity in to dwell with him, he their people, they his God. And he's constantly welcoming wayward, broken, beat up, hungry, needy people to his banquet. How many of you are really glad that's the case? If hospitality is the love of the stranger, think about how hospitable God is, that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us and gave himself up for us. 
If there ever were a quote-unquote stranger, it's you and I, people who should be excluded, people who should have the keep out sign put out right in front of us, but that's not God's disposition to us. His eternal disposition towards us is one of gracious host, making by grace space for the enemy to become friend, which is hospitality at its core. And in John chapter 15, Jesus will say, I no longer call you servants because servants don't know their master's business. No, 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 I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends because you're welcomed here. You're welcomed here. And this is the kind of welcome that God gives to his people. But let's dig in just a little bit more, and I'm going to fly through this. Uh, We're going to celebrate the table today, and we have baptisms today, and so I'm going to fly through this, but I want to point this out so that we don't miss it. What kind of host is Jesus, and what kind of guests are we? Verse 34, it says, when Jesus landed, he saw the crowd, and he had what? Compassion. Literally means that his insides were turned. His, like, his bowels moved, that when he saw those who were pitiful, he was filled with pity. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them. By this time, it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. It was a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countrysides and get themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. When it would be easier to send them away, he opens his arms with gracious welcome and extends compassion. His welcome to us is compassionately extended. Always. Always. We noted this, but I just want to drive it home. Who's invited to Herod's banquet? The rich, the powerful. Who's invited to Jesus' banquet? Anyone, the poor, the needy. And so I just want to say, look at me for a moment. If you're here today, you need to hear this, that God's disposition towards you is not one of keep out. God's disposition towards you is one of, you're welcome here. In the eternal, ever-expanding house of God, there is a welcome mat out, and it's got your name on it. I think one of the lies the enemy loves to whisper to you Is it because of your past, because of things that you've done, because of things that have gone on in your life, that you need to live in guilt and you need to live in shame, and that God, the God of the universe, would never welcome you? Maybe later, once you get it all worked out. Then, yeah, then. I want you to hear as clearly as I can say it this morning. That based on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, there's space for you. The welcome mat of God is out. The party is raging. All you have to do is show up. All you got to do is show up. That's what they do. They show up and they're there. The prophet Isaiah says it like this. Come, come. How many? All who are thirsty. Come to the waters. You who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come, 
buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Not only are all welcome, but it's free. And it's not a potluck. Just show up. Or maybe bring what you got. Bring your five loaves and your two fish and just see what God does. And he says, you're spending money on things that don't satisfy you. Why not come to the feast that God's throwing? Why not go there? It's interesting that at the end of that feast, at the end of Herod's feast, somebody's head is on a platter. At the end of Jesus' feast, they lie down and it says that they were what? They're satisfied. Literally, they're, they're fed, they're fattened, and they're full is what the Greek means. They're satisfied. See, because not only is his welcome compassionately extended, his provision for us is abundantly offered. I said we've got this choice. We've got these two feasts that we have to choose between. The, the feast of the empires of the earth. The feast of the good shepherd. And I want to tell you, it's not your circumstances that, that determine the satisfaction of your soul. It's not the things going on in your life that determine whether or not your soul is filled and satisfied. The one thing that determines whether or not your soul is satisfied is who your shepherd is. And in the midst of death and pain, Jesus throws a party and people walk away full. And so I have this saying that always just rattles around in my head. I try to remind myself of it when I'm disappointed in my circumstances. And it's just this is simple saying, if Jesus is my good shepherd and he knows exactly what, he, what I need, if he doesn't provide it, I must not need it. If he doesn't provide it, I must not need it. In fact, let's just say that together. There's some power in actually saying that out loud. If he doesn't provide it, I must not need it. Because he has the ability to provide whatever he wants. His first miracle is creating out of water somewhere between 120 to 180 gallons of wine. A thousand bottles of wine at a party. It was more than enough for the people there. He's got that ability. If he doesn't provide it, I must not need it. Or for whatever reason, he doesn't want me to have it. And it ends like this. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of men who ate was 5,000. I love this. Everybody eats. And it wasn't like, you know, you go to some places and you're looking around to see how many people are there and how much food's left. And you do some math in your head to figure out how much you can rightfully take and still feel okay about yourself. Have you ever been there? Right. Like, so nobody was doing that at Jesus' party. They're just eating. And there's leftovers. There's more than enough. As if to say, the party is just getting started. There's more than enough. And there's leftovers when he's done. Because the hospitality of God towards us is eternally extended. It's eternally extended. Yeah, that party was just getting started. In fact, that party was a picture of a party that was talked about in the Old Testament scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 25, the Jewish people had this picture in their mind of what the kingdom of God was going to look like when it showed up. If you have your Bible, you can flip there with me. It's, it's a section that they loved and they looked forward to and that Jesus, in shadows and hints and winks and nods, fulfills on that 
countryside on that day. Verse 6 of Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples. The best meats and the finest wines. He's lavish. He's not holding back anything. Nothing. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that envelops and folds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And when Jesus throws this feast, this kingdom feast in the midst of Herod's empire, he's going, this day isn't here perfectly yet, but I want to assure you, it's coming. It's on its way. And notice the people of God, they gather around with enough food, with fine meats and great wines, and they partake and they eat. And then, and then, one of the servers at the banquet brings a special plate out. Did you catch this? A special plate, and Jesus gets a special plate at his banquet. He's eating something different. What's he eating? He will swallow up. It's just like sort of imagery, right? Death forever. When this banquet happens, that, that, that our party that we read about in Mark 6 is a shadow of, when this banquet happens, Jesus will feast on death, will eat it, will ingest it, will take it in in order that you and I can feast on life. And he says it's going to happen, and it's going to take place. That welcome, that life, that love, that goodness that God makes a way for will be our destiny, how long? Forever. Forever. We're feasting on life. God defeats death. And so in Revelation, we see, yeah, oh man, the new heavens and new earth. Look, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, look, check it out. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order, the now order, the current order of things has passed away. Behold, it says in verse 5, the old is gone, the new has come. He's making all things Friends, this is our destiny. The welcome of God, eternally extended. The love of God as displayed in the work of Jesus for us on our behalf. And so every time we get together and we celebrate the communion table, we throw out our blanket in the middle of the wilderness. We host a party in the midst of the Herod's empires. We host a party that has a message that comes along with it. We declare that the kingdom of Jesus has come and that it is coming. Early followers of Christ would get up every Sunday morning, a work day for them in the first century, and they would throw this party. They would remember this field on a hillside a few years ago for them, but they would also remember the messianic banquet that one day is coming where the declaration of what Jesus has done in his death, burial, and resurrection will be a reality for everyone who calls him Lord. 
And they threw this party every single Sunday, this meal that turned the world upside down, where they celebrated God's welcome, where they celebrated God's provision, where they celebrated God's freedom and life and love, where they celebrated God's hospitality. It was a meal that declared sin has been forgiven, death has been conquered, and God's great dance floor is open for business. It's also a meal that declared that God is doing something in the world, that he's taking the world somewhere. As 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 says, for whenever, so this is a past present and future meal of welcome for whenever. So whenever you celebrate this meal, whenever you throw this feast in the wilderness, when you declare the kingdom feast has come, whenever you do that, you eat of this bread and drink of this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death, what he did in the past. We pull it into the present until he comes again. We look towards his future and say, that ultimate feast where he swallows up death, that feast is coming. We stand in the present and we pull the past into it and we pull the future into it and we declare the welcome of God is here and it's for us. See, taking this bread is a declaration. It's a declaration that we refuse to live in the way of the Herods of our world. That in the midst of violence, we choose peace. That in the midst of hate, we choose love. In the midst of scarcity, we receive abundance. And in the midst of death, we choose life. This is his welcome for us. And as we come to the table today, I want to remind you that the host of the party is Jesus. That the food that you eat is his body and his blood that's given for you, a provision made for the forgiveness of your sin. And that you are always welcomed by him. The only thing it takes is showing up. And in order to show up, we've got to repent. We've got to change our mind. We've got to leave the Herod's party and join the Jesus feast. We repent of our way, of our sin, of our failure, of the way of that world, and say, Jesus, your way is better. Forgive me, forgive me, that I might feast on you. And here's what he says back to you. You're welcome here. You're welcome here. Because he's the hospitable God who's created space for you and I to come and to be transformed into his image to live in his way with his heart. He's the hospitable God. And this is his feast that we come and celebrate today. We have servers that will be up front in front of every um, section. And I want to remind this middle section, our biggest section, we have two servers that will be down front in front of that section. But as we come, would you come empty handed but open-handed to receive what God would have for you to gain this morning. Come. Come empty and be filled. Come open and receive from this God who says, 
you are welcomed here. All of our bread is gluten 